This is A is for Adversity, a podcast about curating your life stories to connect more deeply with others. Some stories may have Christian undertones, and all stories will involve a realization or transformation of some sort. I'm your host, Jen Banks. This is Season 2, Episode 1, The Art and Craft of Storytelling with Matthew and Alicia Dix. Hey, it's great to be back. I'm so excited for Season 2. There are so many good things coming. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. I'm glad to have you here. And if you've been with me since season one, thank you for your continued support. Kicking off season two is my interview with Matthew Dix and his wife, Alicia. If you don't know who Matthew is, a simple Google search will give you more information than you were looking for, I'm sure. He is a fabulous author, storyteller, dad, teacher, blog writer, you name it. He does so many things. If you have any interest in storytelling after listening to this podcast, I encourage you to look up his podcast, Speak Up Storytelling. He and his wife co-host it. I sure enjoyed talking with him, and I'm excited to share with you this conversation. It will also be continued in the bonus episode, which follows this one, because I just couldn't bear to leave anything out of the conversation that we had together. Well, I'm excited to have both of you because... Well, in the podcast interviews that I found of you, Matthew, I felt like you were so serious as a guest, but I feel like when you're with your wife, you're a little more fun and lighthearted. I don't know. (laughs) Okay. Yes. I bring the fun. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) My podcast is called A is for Adversity, and I just finished the first season. I just fell in love with storytelling, so that's what my whole second season is going to be about. I figure it goes along with adversity because, like you say, the best stories are the hardest to tell. They come when you're vulnerable and those hard experiences. Yeah. So into the questions, how did you get into storytelling? Well, I mean, I got into storytelling sort of on a whim, the desire to go to New York and tell a story. And some friends, uh, a friend named Kim actually heard the podcast first. The Moth Podcast. The Moth Podcast, right. And said, you'd be great at that. And And then my friend Shep and a couple other people said, you've had the worst life of anyone we know, so you'd be great at telling stories, which turns out not to be the reason to uh, tell stories or to be good at telling stories. So I went to The Moth with Alicia. Uh, I'm coming up on my 10th anniversary, actually. On Monday, I'm going to go back to The Moth in New York live for the first time in 18 months. And it will be exactly 10 years to the day that when we went to the New Americans Poets Cafe and I told my first story sort of thinking that I would do this thing and then move on and keep doing what I was doing. And 10 years later, we're here. Uh, but yeah, when I started um, teaching storytelling, there was a day when Alicia was in the back of the room for some reason, and I was teaching storytelling. Someone asked me, they said, how did you end up becoming a good storyteller? And I said something to the effect of, well, I just sort of stumbled into something that I was good at a little later in life. Do you remember this? In the back of the room, Alicia said, Something like, is that what you tell people? And I said, yeah. And she said, you don't think that like writing stories all of your life, you know, basically since you've been 17, wasn't helpful in crafting stories. And you don't think that being a wedding DJ and standing in front of strangers every Saturday and speaking to them and getting them to do things and moving them around and just learning how to use a microphone, those basic skills, you don't think that was helpful? And then you don't think being a teacher for 20 years and having the worst audience you could possibly ever have, which is, you know, 10 year old children, you don't think all of that played a role and it had never occurred to me. And I remember going like, oh yeah, I guess she's kind of right. 
So it was like training that I wasn't aware of. You know, I was gaining skills that I would never would have anticipated would culminate, you know, one night in New York City on a stage when I told my first story. But she was right, as she often is, that uh, I think a lot of the a lot of the reasons why I was successful quickly was because of the things I had been doing to build up to that point. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And my favorite page in your book, Storyworthy, is where you talk about how hard it is to craft a story on the spot in your workshops because you have to show that vulnerable side. And it was a good aha moment to me thinking, oh yeah, he does have to put work into this. It doesn't just happen. And he has to spend the time crafting them to make them sound good. It is the thing people love to watch the most and is the most painful thing for me to do. You know, I prefer to sound great all the time. I think partly people like it because they get to see the actual process, you know, play out because I don't write my stories because I literally speak them out loud and that's how I craft them. You can actually watch that process where that doesn't often happen in the world where you get to watch someone sort of make something because typically a little bit of privacy is required, but you can sort of be with me when I'm doing that. But I also think it's extremely helpful to people to listen to me sound not good because I think it's so easy to watch someone do something well, whatever it is, and just assume that you could never get there. And that reminds me too of when you see someone's video clip or something online, you just see the highlight reel or you see it sped up. My friend, she decorates cakes. And so you see her do this amazing thing in like 30 seconds and you're like, wow, why can't I do that? But it's sped up and so it's not reality. Yes, and I don't get to the end of the stories that I craft in workshops. You know, Hmm. we don't have the time. I can craft a story in a couple hours in some cases when it's sort of like really fresh in my mind or it's a short period. There are some stories that just come out really quickly, but most don't. In those workshops, people don't get to see the sort of soup to nuts. They get to see the soup to like, you know, somewhere along the lines and then I, and then I abandon it. And oftentimes in the workshop, people say like, can you tell me when you're going to actually finish it so we can hear the completed version? And that's um, too much effort for me. I say that you're just going to listen to the podcast. Maybe it'll come up someday. Right. So true. I know. And I'll make it to one of your workshops one of these days. Oh, so excited. Although I know you don't like the pressure of having someone travel from far away. (laughs) Well, he's doing a lot online. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah could come online. Yeah, but you're right. I hate it when, I mean, we had a workshop where there was two people from China. Workshop. Yeah, two Chinese people. and They I, all came from everywhere. San Diego and yeah. a Vancouver. It was crazy. Yeah. I was very disappointed in all of them. Yeah. Yeah, and your Australian population that follows you. <laughs> right, yes. We have a good Australian contingent. Yeah, in Singapore, too. We have yeah. a lot of friends in Singapore now. Yeah. I know. Wednesday, we're going to go to all these places. Right. So... Then do I have your permission to use Storyworthy as like the curriculum for my podcast? And of course, course. I'll promote it and probably give away some signed copies. Yes. Sounds great. Yes, you can. Yes. Good. Sounds good. Put it it in the world. Sounds good. (laughs) I just wanted you to speak for just a couple seconds about the concept of your stories being accessible to all audiences. Part of my ABC order too is, I was going to include in each episode components of storytelling that began with that letter. So that's a great one for alliteration, accessible to all audiences. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh, Well, you know, accessible to all audience means for me that when I put a story out in the world, as many people will find it palatable, we'll say, or acceptable, which means, you know, I don't swear very often. And when I do, it is 
often repeated dialogue or strategic. You know, it is, there's a real reason behind the swear. So I know there are some people who that will just immediately turn those folks off completely. I, but what I can promise them is that it is part of the craft and art and not part of the, the vernacular, you know? So it's not just random and it's not just purposeless. That sort of leans into the idea of making it accessible to all. If I'm telling a story for students, you know, which I often do, I can sanitize stories very easily. So stories that appear on the radio or the podcast or something I might tell on stage for Speak Up or in New York, I can tell a much more sanitized version of those stories to my students or even our own kids. Sometimes I'll leave out entire events in a, in a story, you know, so I can skirt right past something that the content is questionable as long as the story still holds together. Uh, sometimes I can allude to things that happen without actually saying them. And that'll hold the story together to a certain degree. So, you know, I, I kind of want every person to at least listen to my story and not feel like at some point they have to turn it off. You know, there's a podcast I listen to called Risk, which I love. Very good show. Sometimes I'm listening, though, while I'm eating. And, you know, I, I listen and I think, well, that's an interesting subculture that I didn't know existed, you know? And, oh, wow, I didn't realize that people engage in that kind of behavior. And it's all fine. And then suddenly we're talking about fluids. And I'm like, now I can't eat anymore. Like, there's always that, like, line between you know, we're sharing a truth and a reality and now we're sharing sort of the chemical components of that truth and reality. And that's sometimes not accessible to all people. So I like to try to keep it that way. And Alicia, I think is a good uh, monitor of that for me sometimes, you know, she has much less tolerance for anything sort of like in <laughs> <Anything>. that. <laughs> she really like, if it goes anywhere into the realm of, you know, anything sort of gratuitous or explicit, she has no interest in it whatsoever. And so I tend to have a little more tolerance for it, but I think uh, she is a good barometer of, you know, sort of a reasonable, but, you know, a reasonable person who really has a line and would prefer it not be crossed. Well, I think that, I think that sometimes people share details with the intent to shock you. And that ticks me off. Like that doesn't, that seems manipulative and not genuine to me. I try not to be too prude. I want people to be able to tell their truths. And I think there's a, a place for everybody's story. But I think sometimes I get the sense that somebody is saying something so the audience will be like, clutch my pearls like you know and I don't like that that feels manipulative to me I was thinking that another thing that Matt has made me really aware of in terms of story accessibility um is pop culture reference which I tend to really like because I super love nostalgia but um it gets really tricky with pop culture reference because it does alienate you know, people of different ages and people of different backgrounds that can cut off people's understanding and distract because all of a sudden someone's going, wait, what? So that's another thing about accessibility. Uh, first of all, I knew what you were going to say. Alicia and I have these moments where <laughs> I look at her and I go, I already know what you're going to say. And she goes, okay, we don't need to talk. We just had that moment in the car right. last night. So I knew exactly what you were going to say. But I was like, we don't need to talk anymore. I, I'll add that, you know, to go along with that shock value. I also think that sometimes people are explicit or gratuitous 
thinking it's raising the level of vulnerability in a story. There's nothing really vulnerable about adding layers of description that sort of take the story further. Vulnerability comes from your heart and your mind. It is what you're thinking and it is what you, you're feeling and it's what you're doing, not necessarily the chemical components of that interaction. So I think that is relevant too. True. And also I feel like it supports your belief that everything you say in a story should support your thesis. And once you've covered that basis, then you don't need to go any further kind of like in your story this is going to suck and you don't go too deep into the, you know, grotesque aspect of it. You, you state exactly what the audience needs to know and then you move on. Yes. There's tons of content in that story. If you're in one of my workshops, I actually share a lot of the stuff that I don't include in that story, you know, and people are often shocked and they often say, Oh, I wish you would put that in the story. And I often think you want to hear it now that the story is done and we're chatting about the story. But if it was in the story, the story would start to feel heavy. You start to wonder, when is it ever going to end? Why are these things in here? It's always after the story is done that tossing in those additional moments seem compelling to people because now the story is done, you have an idea of what it is. It's sort of like what Alicia does all the time. We'll watch a movie. And then for the next 24 to 48 hours, she will read every single thing that could ever be known about the movie, but she would never want it in the movie. But after the movie, she wants to know everything. So I think that's how people feel about stories too. Okay. Right? Okay, yes. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. And you've mentioned that before too, where you kind of want to leave your audience wondering or you want to have them come ask you if they need to, but just leave that little bit of wonder in there. So right. good. Yeah. And then one more thing to speak to that starts with the letter A and then we can move on. Uh, anecdotes. So I feel like when I first heard that word, I had to look it up and I didn't really know, but maybe audiences don't really know what that means. An anecdote is not really a story because it doesn't contain that thesis statement. There is no change that takes place over time. You know, an anecdote is, it's a, it's a story that's not going to resonate in the hearts and minds of people very long. It's so often an amusing thing that has happened that does not carry the hubris of a, of a story. You know, it says something that happened to us that I think is interesting enough to share to other people. Got it. Which I know is what you say a lot of people do when they're first starting homework for life is they write it as something that happened, not necessarily as a story worthy moment. And then my other question was, are stories made up of anecdotes or not always, or sometimes would you call them the building blocks of stories or do you usually fill your stories with other things? I don't know. I guess I'm trying to understand the exact format of a story and how to craft it. I think sometimes they're built with anecdotes and sometimes they are not. You know, in the examples you gave for your stories, let's say we go back to that story about uh, lacking faith in humanity and then the wallet shows up at the door. When I say go find a moment in life where you were lacking faith in humanity, what I'm really asking you is to collect some anecdotes about moments in your life when you started to doubt humanity and its goodness. And then from that, you would choose one central anecdote or three smaller anecdotes to support that front end of your story and then move into the back end. So I think that sometimes stories are built from anecdotes or partially built from anecdotes and sometimes they're not. Sometimes I just have a story where something happened and I changed my mind and, and now I'm moving on and uh, that's the case too. But I think they're very helpful. I think they're worth recording. They're great. Like they're not bad to tell, you know, like I was playing golf with my buddies and telling them lots of anecdotes about, you know, New York City yesterday and 
you know, my buddy was telling me anecdotes about his golf lesson that he took, you know, so they're all good. They're just not sort of like the things you want to take to a stage. They're not the kinds of things that will resonate for long periods of time with your audience, you know, whereas a story might stay with a person for the rest of their life. I don't think an anecdote will generally stay very long in their hearts and minds. Got it. Yeah, I'm collecting anecdotes about my husband right now. And like you say, you love to make a list and then choose the best ones. And while I was talking about love on one of my podcast episodes, I realized something and it was so cool because when I first met my husband, my first impression of him is when I'm looking through my rear view mirror because he ended up in my carpool. And I thought he was weird because he was making some joke and I didn't quite understand his humor yet. And then the moment that I realized I loved him we were, we had just gotten done donating plasma and I was talking on the phone with my mom in the car and he was waiting in the back or like outside the car, leaning on the trunk and he started to pass out. And so I was like, mom, I got to go. And I ran back there because I'd seen him in my rear view mirror. And that was when I was like, oh, I just want to take care of you. I don't want anything bad to happen to you. And that was when I realized that I loved him. So I, I love the rear view mirror there because I always love when I can connect things through objects and, um, so I'm just collecting anecdotes to, to show how I, how, what my husband's like. You understand that's a story though, right? Yes. Yes, I do. But okay. I'm collecting anecdotes within it to describe what my husband's like. Yes. yes. But that is absolutely a story of, I look through the rear view mirror to a weird guy. Then some stuff happens. I look through the rear view mirror. He's falling down and I realize I love him. Yes. Like the middle is obviously you need some stuff, but you know, that's a story. That, that's, I know. That was like the first one I came up with that I was so proud of. I was like, yes, I have a story because I hadn't really felt like I had stories yet, which I knew I did, but I just hadn't realized like exactly yeah. how they'd go. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So, okay. Finally, we can involve you a little bit more, Alicia. <laughs> Do you want to tell from your perspective how you and Matt met? Sure. Let's see. Matt and I were teaching together in the same elementary school and we were friends and we were hanging out, you know, with other teachers a lot of the time. We were, in, we were both in serious relationships, but our relationships ended. People are always like, you know, want, want like a scandalous story that we ended each other's relationships, but that's not actually true. But we ended our relationships and we became closer friends. And let's see. So we... We were becoming, you know, we were like in that phase of our friendship where we were talking on the phone a lot at night and like we were talking on the phone late at night about getting to know each other really well. And it was during those conversations that I knew that we were going to get married. So we weren't dating yet, but I was like, (laughs) oh, we're going to get married. But like there was a night. Oh, all right. So I'll tell you this. So we would go out with friends and Matt always had all these stories. Like I remember when we went, we were uh, camping at Camp Jewel, like super early when I first met you. And he was telling the whole group of us about when he was pole vaulting in high school, which is a hilarious story. Oh, and the story you won your first moth with. Yes. Also. And he was telling that story. And like just over time, it was really evident that there would be no dining dead with Matt and we would go out and like, he had so many interesting things to tell me and his life was so different than mine because my life, I grew up very um, safe and cozy and, you know, with a very, very thick safety net 
And Matt grew up very differently than I did. And I was really fascinated by that and impressed with that. And so it was in hearing all those stories about his life that he made me laugh and he made me um, just really respect and admire him. And that was how I fell in love with him. That's awesome. That was great. Thank you. I talk about how I don't want people to feel like they have to craft up three great stories in order to go to dinner. I want to turn people into the kind of storytellers where something just happened five minutes ago and now I can come back to the table and tell it right. in a compelling, interesting, crafty way without having to stop and go, where, you know, where am I? You should automatically like, you know, and the, the skills. Yeah. The automaticity of whenever I start a story, it's always got a location and something is happening and I'm making try to wonder what's happening immediately. And I sort of instinctually know whether it should be ABC or BABC. I know like all of those things instinctually. And I think people can get to that place okay. where their instinct is the same. Okay. And then you kind of touched on this earlier, but will you continue to hold virtual events now that the pandemic is over? I mean, we can't wait to get back to real life and real life is best because it's the energy and, um, and it's the exchange, but being able to have virtual shows has been fantastic. And we've been able to like go into the homes of people who listen to our podcast who are not in Connecticut. And we've gotten to know some of those people in their little squares and that's been awesome. So our plan is to have probably two virtual events a year is probably how we'll do it. And workshops will definitely be virtual because they're, you know, it's so much easier for people to participate. We will do live workshops yeah. as well. Um, and we'll do live shows, but yeah, we'll stay to a certain degree virtual. I mean, we, we've developed audience all over the world yeah. in our virtual shows and we wouldn't want to exclude them. So, you know, That's I perfect. think probably, I think once a season excluding summer. So like I'm thinking maybe three. Um, so somewhere between two and three. And I'm thinking two. And I'm thinking <laughs> three. Um, have you told us a, a story at Speak Up or not yet? And you don't plan to or? Not yet. And I don't plan to. I had, I told like a mini story once about something that happened to me in college, but no, I really don't have any desire to. Oh, sorry. I like what you said about the bound, keeping the boundary between like fan and spouse or something like that. That's very important to me. She tells a lot of anecdotes at Speak Up following stories. Makes sense. Uh, She's also told stories about me that I didn't want told at Speak Up. Uh, So she's capable of telling other people's (laughs) stories, but not her own. Okay. And then my last question for you is, would you ever consider doing a show in Salt Lake? Because I know you've gone like to all parts of the world, as long as you have a following or something. Totally. I am, I have a thing about Salt Lake because there's a lot of artsy Mm. people out there and it's a place I want to go. Yes. Cool. I'm so glad you haven't come here yet and that I can go to it when you come. Yeah. 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 We have, I have a lot of um, people who reach out to us from there too. Mm-hmm. I connected with a couple podcasters in the area and, and I, I'm not sure how else, but I just feel like there's a lot of, um, a lot of those folks come through our podcast and through our virtual shows. So we seem to have um, people who know us there too. It's which a place nice. I'd love to go. I've never been um, in that area at all. I would, and you haven't at all. No. Um, I went to my cousin's wedding in Colorado 
but that's the closest I've ever been. And that was just like in for the weekend for the wedding and out. But that's like, I really want to see the landscapes there. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's awesome. I will look forward to hearing about that when it happens. And thank you so much for doing this interview. And how can people find, find you? Well, if you go to speakupstorytelling.com or matthewdix.com, you can find everything there. Mm-hmm. Our, our podcast is Speak Up Storytelling, and you can get that wherever you get your podcasts. I think that... People can find your books. Oh, you can find my books. Matthew on Dix. Wherever you get books, you can find... Wherever you get, wherever you get books. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time. I really do appreciate meeting you and talking with you. So Thank you for having us. Yeah, this was thanks. great. If you'd like to pitch your story for the podcast, or if you want more storytelling strategies, contact me at jenbanks16 at gmail.com or find me on Instagram at jenbankscoaching.